Ah. I was crying every song um, as I watched all you old people walk through the door (laughs) that I have just loved and have loved me. Scott and Linda, June and Ruby, Chuck. There's others, I'm sure. Oh, sorry. It's going to be hard for me. I'm Brad. Um, Some of you don't know me, but I grew up here. And uh, I sat right there where all of these kids are sitting right here, so you all better behave. And uh, I was looking to see if the same hymnal was there that I wrote my name in. It wasn't the same one. Um, And my brother told me that if I'd made him come to the front again like I did last week, that we'd have a standoff. (laughs) Hey, Andy. (laughs) Welcome. So I won't make you do that. But I should let you know that in the history of the Presbyterian Church, revival starts at the back of the sanctuary. So since my whole family is back there, you better be careful. We might go home after this and have our own little, uh, continue our church service. Um, thank you for having me again. Um, I'm, uh, I wasn't nervous until I walked in and saw all you guys coming in for coffee this morning and stuff. So, Trey, thanks for having me and letting me... I think they all blame me that you're on sabbatical, so that's why they make me come twice. Um, but we're going to talk about uh, adoption today. The doctrine of adoption as we see in the scriptures. So Galatians chapter 4... Verses 1 through 7. Oh, and I was told last time I didn't do this. I didn't introduce my family to you last time, so I apologize. My wife Jessica's right up here. She's the one babysitting all of my nieces and my cousin's kids and everybody up here. So, uh, And uh, I have four kids. William is 10. Ruby is 9. Just turned 9 last month. And they, as soon as I say their names, they go like this. They look down. But I'm proud of you guys. You can look up at me. That's all right. And then Axel um, is six, who I know many of you prayed for. And, uh, and then Ru- or Greta is uh, four. And those two are in the nursery back there. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. We're, t- we're going to talk about adoption. And uh, our passage is a fairly famous one. If you've got your Bible, you could turn there. And there's one in the pew, so you don't have an excuse. Um, turn there with me, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Uh, and this, uh, it's a famous passage because, mostly because of this phrase that we're going to see in there called Abba Father. You've probably heard that phrase before, and we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But this text basically says that if we're part of God's family, then our hearts will cry out to Him using this phrase, Abba Father. And so before we read our text today, I want you to think about something. Think about this. Nowhere in the entire Old Testament does anyone call God Father. It never happens. The writers occasionally refer to Him as Father a few times, as a Father. But nowhere do they address Him as Father. In fact, nowhere in the history of any Jewish literature of any kind, leading up to the time of Jesus, does anyone call Him Father. No one says that. It's not allowed. Jesus is actually the first person to do this. He's the first person to directly address God himself using the title Father. And in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read through the life of Jesus, they record that Jesus did this 165 times. 
And so think about this. When Jesus teaches his disciples in Luke chapter 11 how to pray, he commands them to start out by crying out to God as their Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so this would have blown their minds. They had no concept that they would actually have the right to directly address the God of the universe with such an intimate term. That wasn't in their vocabulary. And here's why this is important as we step into our text today. It seems like Jesus was being very deliberate when he teaches them this. And when he calls God Father and does it so often. He's showing us that our very identity, right down to our core of who we are, ought to be marked by this truth that we are sons and daughters of God Most High. Today, most of us, when we say a typical prayer, we probably begin by addressing God as Father in some form, probably in a, in a casual way, in a passing nature. Sort of like, Father, thank you for this meal, or Father, uh, thank you for this day, or Father, please, please heal uh, a sick or something. But in the first century, when Paul was writing these letters to the different churches that we have that make up most of the New Testament, this concept that God himself was accessible to us like a father was extremely uncomfortable for people to hear about. They would have felt like blasphemers calling out the name of God and calling him father. So when Paul uses the analogy of adoption to explain the theology of how we're saved, this was mind-blowing to them. He wants the Christians in the church to stop seeing themselves as slaves to sin and slaves to the world and begin seeing themselves as sons and daughters of God. This was a fundamental shift in their identity as Christians. And so we're going to read Galatians 4, 1 through 7, and I want you to think about that background as we read through this this text here. After I read it, we'll pray together, and then we'll dig in. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean, I'm reading from the ESV this time, in case you were wondering. I mean that the heir, H-E-I-R, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, according to God. Let's pray together. Father... I pray that you would awaken our hearts to this theology, this this very foundational theology that we are adopted into your family when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. When we call out to you as our Father, and we cry out to Jesus to save us from our sins, then we are adopted into your family. And what a beautiful picture that is of salvation. I pray that you would open our eyes to this truth and help us to see your text more clearly today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so to start, we're going to define three terms that Paul uses in this text. First, heir, H-E-I-R, not A-I-R, and then slave, and then adoption. Those are the three terms we're going to 
identify, we're going to kind of explain what they mean, and then we're going to explain how Paul is using those terms in this, in this text. All three of these terms are legal terms. In the Roman world at the time, and this letter was written to this church that was in Galatia. I learned about a lot of this stuff from this book and some articles by this guy named Francis Lyle. If you want to look him up, you're free to. He's a Scottish law professor and a Bible scholar. And he writes a lot about Paul's use of these terms. He points out that Paul was actually a trained lawyer. That was one of, that was a trade of his. And so when he uses these legal terms, there's a specific purpose behind it. He's using them very, um, very purposefully. And so after we define these terms, we're going to take a look at the spiritual implications of what Paul's actually trying to say. So first of all, let's talk about being an heir. In our modern culture, when we think of an heir, it means that you've inherited something from someone else. When they pass away, when they die, they leave you possessions or money or something like that. And so when you receive what's left to you, you become an heir. In other words, for you to become an heir requires the death of someone else. But this is, this is a very different understanding of what Paul was calling an heir in this text, in the Roman world. Under Roman law, an heir was a son who lived under the patriarch of a family, and the heir, while the patriarch was still living, had access to his father's estate even while they were both living. I know my dad's getting nervous as I say that. I'm not coming after your fortune. But Scott might. He's the older brother. He technically has the right to it. So in a Roman world, though, an heir had a job to do. He acted as sort of an apprentice, learning to carry on the lead role in the family. Learning the family business. Learning how to run the household. Learning how to lead in family worship. In the eyes of the law, everything that the heir did, it was as if the head of the family did it also. If the heir succeeded in business... Then the head of the family reaped all the benefits. And if the heir had legal troubles, then the head of the household was responsible for him. So in this way, being an heir is very different from our modern understanding, our modern context, because being an heir in the Roman world is not so much about when someone dies. It has much more to do with how someone lives. But there's another interesting point about being an heir under Roman law that we have to understand as we read what Paul's saying. There was a certain coming-of-age point where the father had the right to name his son to be an heir. And, then that, and that time was totally determined by the father. There wasn't a set age when this was, would happen. Usually it was somewhere in the teenage years. Before that point, the son had no special rights or privileges of any kind. But at this coming of age moment, at this moment when the father names his son an heir, that's when all the wealth of the father was at the fingertips of the heir as well. Look back at chapter 3, our text today, just one verse prior to it, and then we're going to read that and into verse or chapter 4, verse 1, to see what Paul's talking about here. It says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. That's the time before that coming-of-age moment. Though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. The heir has the same rights as a slave, in other words, until the day appointed by the father when he becomes a living heir. And then everything changes. And so that brings up an important question. Well, what's a slave in this context? So that's the second term we're going to define. Being a slave in Roman culture does not mean the same thing that we think 
when we think back in our country's history of slavery and the heinous acts that were done. A better term would be bond servant. It was a person who was indebted to someone else. By law, that person was then required to work off his debt for a set amount of time. The term slave in this context, in the Roman world, doesn't necessarily carry the same connotation of an oppressive relationship between one and the other. In fact, oftentimes in that world, a slave or a bondservant would willingly continue to work for his debtor as a paid employee after he had served his time and paid off his debts. And then to go even a step further, think about this. Sometimes the employer didn't have a son to pass along his estate to. And so if the, if the bondservant or the, and the employer have a good relationship with one another, the employer would actually choose to officially invite that bondservant into his family to become his official heir. And guess what that process is called? Adoption. That's how they use that term. So that's the third term we're going to define. It means something very different than what we think. In our culture, adoption applies usually only to someone who's legally underage. When we think of adoption, it almost always involves infants or toddlers. The emphasis is is put on saving a child from being an orphan. But Francis Lyle writes that the adoption in the Roman world was never for the sake of the child. It was all about preserving the family. So in the Roman world, adoption was used as more of a legal device, usually by someone who's childless, to, take, to, to keep the family name going and keep it alive in their community. The head of the family needed someone to carry on family life, continue tending to his estate, continue leading worship. So he chooses an heir. And that adopted heir then would have all the natural rights as a biological heir would have. So think about this. Think about the implications of that. That in the Roman legal system, someone could literally go from being a slave to being a son to being an heir of an estate. That's, that's pretty crazy. And all through that process, that's called adoption. And so this is the part, this, now we're going to fit it all together and explain why we're talking about this. Think back to what we just read about what Paul's saying here. If you have placed your trust in Christ, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've been united with Him, then you've been named a living heir of God Himself. You've gone from being a slave to sin and to the world, to a son or daughter of God, to being an heir of God's kingdom. In the Roman world, a son had to prove himself worthy before he was ever considered worthy of being an heir. And there was no guarantee that his father would ever actually pass it along to him. But with God, we're counted heirs because of a promise that God made, not because of our own efforts or our worthiness. In Romans 8... Paul uses almost identical language as he's using here in Galatians chapter 4. Paul says that we are heirs of God, but we are also co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Think about that for a second. And then look at Galatians 4, verse 3 through 5 with me. It says, In the same way we also, when we were children... We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
So follow Paul's logic with me here for a second. Now that we've defined the terms, we've explained what adoption is, follow his logic. This is his main point. In fact, this is what all of Christianity hinges upon. All of it. God wants to expand his family tree. He wants to build up his family. He already has a son, and his son is perfect. And so he doesn't need more family members. But he wants us. But of course, there's a problem. Jesus has the right to call God his father because he's earned it. But we don't have that right. Jesus is God's one and only son. God's not our biological father. Jesus is the only one who has proven himself worthy of being an heir. And so in a fair and just world, he's the only one who could, be, who could ever be considered God's true son. But God doesn't treat us fairly. Thank God. He treats us with abundant mercy. We failed to live up to his family requirements. So God had to intervene on our behalf in order to save us, in order to make us part of his family. So what did he do? The scripture says that when the time was right, like we just read, when the time was right, when the fullness of time had come, God sent Jesus into the world to redeem us. Look at verse 4 and 5 again with me. Why did God send his son? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's us. So that we might receive adoptions as sons. We could add, and daughters. The word redeem here literally means to free a slave. That's what it means. To literally pay the price that is owed in order to free a bondservant from his legal obligations. If you wanted to be free from slavery you would have to pay the redemption price. For us to be freed from slavery to sin and death, Jesus Christ was the payment. His life was the redemption price. In other words, God gave up His child so that you and I could become His children. So we could become heirs. And our older brother welcomed us into the family and he literally did it with open arms. When he hung on that cross in our place. That's quite a family to be adopted into, isn't it? So let that sink in for a second. If your only experience with adoption was in a Roman legal sense, like the audience that Paul's writing to in this letter, if you only saw adoption as a legal act to preserve a family name, then think about the absurdity of what Paul's describing here. That God wanted you in his family so badly... That he would use his only son as the redemption payment for you to become his son and daughter and his heirs in his kingdom. There's no greater display of love in the history of the world. I challenge you to find one. No other story you will ever hear that is more beautiful and humbling and majestic than that story. And I'll tell you that if you're here this morning, If you're here this morning and you have not experienced adoption into God's family, I want you to hear right now that you're invited. You can come. You can receive that adoption and experience what it's like to be included in the family of the creator of the universe. And because of Jesus, you don't actually have to do anything to earn that position. All you must do is acknowledge to God that you are a wretched sinner. You have no hope. 
There is nothing you can do apart from the powerful working of Jesus Christ to save your soul. And you must repent and trust that your big brother's finished work on the cross will save you. Luke chapter 15 says that when one sinner repents and turns to God, there will be a party amongst the angels waiting for you. There will be rejoicing and singing in heaven over just one sinner who wants to repent today. Our airport in Bloomington Normal is really small. I don't know if you've ever been there. In the middle of the terminal, there's just one escalator that kind of comes down. It funnels down through the security checkpoint right there. When everyone exits, they all have to come down the same escalator. And the barrier between the waiting area and that escalator, gosh, I'm just talking about an escalator. The barrier between those two, the terminal and where people come out, is just this big, thick wall of glass. So basically, everyone getting off the plane and coming down to go where the baggage claim is, is on full display, like on a grand staircase, just coming down in front of everybody. Well, our, church, our church has a lot of adoptions. There's a lot of people in our church that adopt kids. And every time that one of these, every time one of these families brings home a child... Dozens of people from our church gather in that waiting area, and we watch through the glass as we wait for them to be arrived. It doesn't matter what time of day or night it is, there will be people there waiting. And when they come down off that plane, gosh, they start to descend down that escalator. We just cheer. Everybody else just looks at us like we're insane. We just start cheering, just welcoming home an orphan. They come through those gates, we hug them, we cry with them, we love them, we sing, we pray with them. Right there in the, in the airport. I think, it's, I think that's what, a bit what it will be like in heaven. When one sinner repents, like an adopted child coming home to join his family. So here's my next question. i got another story to tell that's going to make me cry more. Man... Here's my next question I think we all need to think about. What does it look like to no longer live then as an orphan, but to live as an adopted son or a daughter of God? Orphans often suffer from identity crisis. You don't know who you belong to. It's easy to disassociate, become numb to the world. It's a common issue with, with children who are adopted, especially from circumstances that are, that are not good. When they've grown up a little bit and orphanages that aren't up to standards, and then they come into a family, they struggle to enter into family life. Orphans have to learn what it's like to be in a family. They're totally dependent on their new family. The only people who can teach an orphan how to be a part of a new family is the father and mother. They have a hard job to do. And this is exactly what God does with us. He sends His only Son to die for us, to make us, to bring us out of being an orphan, to adopt us as a son or a daughter. And then He doesn't just leave us there. He sends His Holy Spirit to be with us, to change us, to teach us what it's like to be in His family. So look at verse 6 with me. It says, And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. That's His promise to us. And what does it do? It causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. With this sentence that Paul's writing here, he's showing us that adoption in God's kingdom 
goes so much further than just being legal ramifications for preserving a family line. This is where Paul takes the illustration that they would have known and he applies it to the gospel. He's adding another layer of depth to their theology of adoption. He says that when you're adopted by God, something changes in you. Something more than just your legal status changes. God is adopting you into something more than just some legal arrangement. He's calling you into an intimate relationship with himself. And how do we know this? Because there's something more that accompanies the adoption. The Spirit we just read about. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and empowers us to look at God, the God of the universe, and call Him Father. In other words, there's an experiential shift that happens when we are brought into God's family. We not only move from being a slave to a son in a legal sense, but we move from being a son to an heir of the kingdom. Now we have full access to God's wealth. The Father has named that time and we have entered into His family. But it's not a worldly wealth. This isn't a health and wealth gospel. It's a spiritual wealth. We can experience a fullness of life that comes only through Jesus Christ and it's empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a fullness that's not possible if we're not in God's family because the only other option is slavery to the world. So right now, each one of us then are in one of two places. There's no middle ground. We're either slaves to the world, still living as an orphan, or we're sons and daughters of the Most High King. There's no lukewarm. It's hot or cold. If you're in God's family, then your new family estate, all the wealth... It lies beyond this world. And so as we live here and now, we wait, we look to heaven, we set our minds on things above, and we wait for that day to come. And we wait in anticipation for our big brother to come back and finish the job and make all things new again. And in the meantime, we've got to learn how to live as a son or a daughter. That's discipleship. And that's more than what we can tackle in a sermon today. That's why you have a great pastor in Trey who's leading you through that process. If you want to learn what it's like to live as an heir, then be discipled. Read your scriptures. Learn, pray, study. Take it seriously. But it doesn't come natural to us. We have to be taught these things. And this is what Paul describes just a chapter before when he lists all the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. I know that because I'm pretty sure that Scott Mann taught it to me in Awana. I can memorize things. Discipled me. June. Man, I remember. Well, maybe I shouldn't tell. Well, I'll tell a story. I remember sitting in Awana and I was, I was cheating. Mom, my Awana verses. I wrote down the Awana verses and kept them between my legs on the chair and I sat across, made sure I positioned myself across the table from June so that he wouldn't know. And I just, I felt so guilty. I felt shame. And I just said, after, after about, I was halfway through it, and I was doing great. I wanted to play games that week. And I just pulled the paper up. I said, June, I've been cheating. I don't know if you even remember this. 
I said, I'm so sorry, I've been cheating. And June said, I know. He said, I know, it's okay. And he just loved me. That's kind of funny, but that makes me weep. When I think about the kindness that you showed me, discipling me. Paul's showing that God is faithful to teach us how to live as a son or a daughter. He does it by giving us the Spirit, teaching us to live by the Spirit, and he inclines our heart to cry out to him saying, Abba, Father. And so Paul's use of the word Abba here, you've probably heard about this before. It's interesting. Abba is it's just an Aramaic word for Father. That's all it is. There's nothing particularly fancy about it, except that Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke, and the Bible, the New Testament, was written in Greek. And so when Paul uses the Aramaic word here, it seems out of place. That's why the translators left it as Abba, and they didn't just translate it as Father, Father. He's specifically trying to direct our attention to it. And so we have to ask this question, what's Paul trying to show us? The word Abba actually only appears in the Aramaic form in the New Testament three times. Paul uses it twice, once here, and then once in Romans 8, when he's basically saying the same thing, just sending the letter to different churches. The third time, though, is different. You probably know where it's at. It's in the Gospel of Mark, and it comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. It's, Tim Keller writes about the importance of this in his commentary on the book of Galatians. This passage in Mark is the moment where Jesus prays in Gethsemane. It's a time where Jesus is dealing with this anguish in his heart. This is one of the most intimate interactions that we have recorded between Jesus and his Father. Jesus is literally praying, asking the Father if there's any other way that he can fulfill his plan of redemption. Because he knows that going to the cross is going to be painful. And so he asks that, 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 Jesus, that God might find another way. He's bearing his heart to his Father. The text shows very vividly that Jesus is dealing with this tremendous amount of sorrow and stress over what's about to happen to him. And when Jesus feels like he's about to embark on something that's unbearable, what does he do? He goes into an intimate time of prayer with his Father. He cries out to God, saying, Abba, Father. Father, Father. And so when Paul tells us that we can cry out to God, calling him Abba, Father, then we're in good company with Jesus himself, who needed that same kind of intimate relationship with him. He's telling us that once we're adopted, we can have the very same intimacy that our big brother has with God himself. Some of you might have moments where you feel the need to cry out to God. (sighs) Axel is six now. Last night we were at Old Settlers and uh, Peg Boyce came up to me. And I was with Axel, and she just started crying. <laughs> and she looked at Axel, and she said, we prayed for you. <laughs> Axel has a kidney problem. He, when he was in the womb, we didn't think he was going to live. The doctor actually said that on a spectrum of this being the worst-case scenario, where he would live and maybe, maybe have a 50-50 chance of making it, and this end being that he would need a kidney transplant, when he was maybe around eight or nine years old. That's the best case scenario. That was our spectrum they gave us. And the doctor said, everything we've seen on the scans, you better prepare for over here on the bad end of that spectrum. And we found that out at about 20 weeks. 
Which means we had 20 weeks, 20 more weeks of crying out to God. And I remember being embarrassed that I had to cry out to him as often as I did. And we would, do, we would both do this. We would, we would wake up in the middle of the night and we would take turns. We didn't know this. We didn't know the other one was doing it. One night I would wake up and I would go out to the couch in our living room and I would just weep so loudly that I thought I would wake up everybody in our family. And then the next night I would be tired from being up all night and I would sleep and she'd wake up. And she'd go out to the couch and cry. And we talked about this later, not knowing that each of us were just crying out to God for our son. God is pleased with that. I didn't, I didn't know for sure then. I mean, I think I did, but I was still embarrassed that I would cry so much. And here I am crying in front of you guys. But God is pleased with it when we cry out to him saying, Abba, Father, I don't even have the words to pray. I just need you. Need you to come through. You know, Axel, when he was born, he was fine. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't ever need a kidney surgery. And uh, he only has one good kidney, but you can live with one, apparently. Who knew? The doctors did. And I just, I think, you know, even if Axel had died, God would still be worthy of all his glory. Even if Axel wasn't with us, God is still worthy to be praised. And the crying out to him in the midst of those hard times was still worth it. Because it brought an intimacy with God, my Father, that I never would have experienced without it. Paul's connecting our intimacy with God to the same intimacy that Christ has with God. In other words, we truly are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That's not just a word we throw around. Paul's encouraging us to remember that being adopted is much more than a legal act like the Roman culture at the time. Being adopted is an experience. And if we only focus on the legal reality of our new last name, it's like only receiving half the gospel. Once you've been adopted into God's family, now your life with Him really begins. Families who have adopted children don't go through the painstaking, expensive process just to bring their child home and then leave them off to themselves. It's just the beginning. It's what family life is all about. And so what's life like in God's family? It's marked by intimacy with the Father. I'll finish with this story. Another family in our church. Family that was very kind to us. When we were first married, we did laundry over at their house all the time. We were in a small group led by them. This this uh, couple there, probably about our age now. They were about what we are now, about thirty, late thirties. And they had a heart to help a lot of us young couples learn how to have good marriages. There were about five or six of us in the group, and each week the Swigers would open up their home to us as we learned a lot about them. Not only from our discussions in our small groups, but watching them parent their three kids. And right about that time, they felt God calling them to adopt. And so we all started praying for them, that they would find this child to adopt. And later that year, they brought home a baby boy named Gabriel, became part of their family. He was adopted from Guatemala. They've gone on now to adopt seven more kids. I think they're in the process of another one, maybe. 
And Gabriel, though, is their first one. He was just a little guy. And I have this vivid memory of how his mom, Tara, she would just hold him nonstop. Every time we were over at their house, he was always in their arms. Never sitting in a bassinet or in a chair, a swing or anything like that. Always in her arms. And I love kids. I was a kindergarten teacher for a while before I went to seminary. And I, I remember I just wanted to hold that little baby. And she, she wouldn't let me. She said no. <laughs> she wouldn't put him down. But it wasn't because Gabriel was always begging to be held. It was because Mark and Tara were deliberately teaching him what it meant to be their son. To be Tara's son meant that you were going to be loved, whether you wanted that love or not. To be adopted into the Swiger family meant that you were going to be held and you were going to be cherished, whether you wanted it or not. And when we're adopted into God's family, He's going to love you, whether you want that love or not. God loves you. He sent His Son as the redemption price to save you, to put on display His love. And if you've not experienced adoption into His family, I invite you to call out to Him today. To cry out to Him for mercy and to be adopted into God's family. Let's pray together. Father, you are, uh, you're, you're so kind to us. You're so good and faithful. And Father, we pray that you would teach us what it's like to be a part of your family. That as we think about where we're headed on our spiritual journeys, that we would think about how our story intersects with that of Jesus Christ and what he's done. And once we are presented with the gospel, then we have a decision to make. Are we going to be an orphan or a son or a daughter? And Father, I pray that everyone in here would choose to know you, to love you, to walk with you, that they would cry out to you, and they would see that there is no salvation apart from you and your son Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit drawing us to yourself. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that's it. But well, last time I did a benediction, and I hope that's okay. I think I'll do it again. So if you want to stand with me. I said this last a uh, couple weeks ago, but at our church we hold our hands out like this. Just there's nothing special about it except signifying that we come empty to the Lord and that He is the one who must fill us. And so we lay out our lives before Him and we receive a benediction from the Word. as God blessing us. And so here's a benediction from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.